morning again. When I started to prepare for this message, I immediately got a huge case of deja vu. You see, some months back, it was my privilege to deliver the message on Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, which is the triumphant entry, which we celebrate today on Palm Sunday. It's the introduction to the Passion Week, the celebration of the last week of Jesus' pre-resurrected life on earth. This message and the ones that are planned to follow this coming week will focus on the person and work of Jesus. Scott will deliver the message on Friday night when we remember Jesus' death on the cross. And God willing, Elliot will be able to deliver the one next Sunday where we observe and celebrate Jesus' resurrection. The event we celebrate this day, called, as we know, the Triumphant Entry, was recorded in a slightly different perspective in each of the four Gospels. John's Gospel emphasizes the deity of Christ, and John presents Christ Jesus as the very one who in the Bible prophesied would be God manifested in the flesh. John presents Jesus as the one God of the Bible who returns to his people in the incarnation of God. That's why in John 1, in the Spirit, it led him to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in verse 14 of John 1, he announces to us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God took on a human body, and that body was presented in Jesus Christ. I thought for our main text today, we would look at the triumphant entry from the perspective of Luke. I think it's significant that Luke was an educated man, a physician of his day, and he himself was converted to Christianity. Luke presents Jesus Christ from, a biblical, from the biblical prophecies as the coming sacrificial lamb. But Luke also announces him as the Son of Man. So let's look at it together, shall we? Let's open up to Luke 19. Well, we'll read from verses 28 to 44. Luke 19, the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he set, sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. Then they sat on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, 
already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and then and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful that you've given us your word to teach us, to guide us, and help us to know you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Let your Spirit come among us today to allow us to understand the significance of this moment in the life of our Lord Jesus and what it, and what it means for us today. We ask these things in his name. Amen. When Jesus is born, the angels rejoiced. Everyone rejoiced, realizing the significance of the event. Finally, the Messiah had come. But there was no public rejoicing of Jesus being with us again until this event that we're studying this morning. The angels proclaimed it at his coming birth, and now we see it here. We see the Messiah being announced by the peoples on Palm Sunday. Earlier in Mark, we see that Jesus himself had told his disciples of what was to come. In Mark 8, that we studied months ago, Jesus instructs them. Mark 8.31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Here, after their three-year ministry, they've made it. They've reached the end as they make their final trek into Jerusalem. You see, in a sense, what we celebrate as the triumphal entry is anything but triumphal, as his arrival in Jerusalem will be the end of his pre-resurrected life and ministry. Jesus is in control of every detail in his life and ministry. He's on a divine timetable. He's doing things precisely when God wants them done and as God determines them to be done. He follows the will of his Father perfectly. He knows that he is about to start a huge event Jerusalem has swelled with these three hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who have come out there. Everybody knows about him, 
because of the three years of extensive miracles as he traveled throughout the land. Some have estimated that the crowd surrounding him comes as he comes into the city could have been well over 200,000 people. He knows that when this begins, it will escalate rapidly. Now, Jesus never before allowed such attention on himself in his entire ministry because he knew that it would bring a strong reaction and vengeance from the religious leaders who wanted him dead for a long time. A display like this would speed up everything toward them completing their mission of his execution. Up until now, he didn't want that to happen. But now he did. Now was the time. This was the city. This was the week. Friday would be the day. And he sets this demonstration in motion to move everything toward his own crucifixion on Friday because that's the day when the Passover lambs were slain. And that's the day he would be slain as the true and only Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His timing is perfect. It is also the day, Monday, when families took the lamb that they were to have slain on the Passover day, Monday, into the house. The lamb would become part of the family, a pet, endearing itself to the family to be slaughtered as a symbol of sacrifice of the sins of the entire family. And so if he offers himself, as it were, to the family of Israel on the very day when they were slain, taking in their lambs, and he would die on the very day that the lambs would be slain. His timing is also perfect because of Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. It said in that prophecy that there would be 69 times 7 years, weeks of years, 69 times 7 until Messiah would come and be cut off. He comes in perfect fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Everything is in line. And so he triggers the event himself by sending the disciples to get the animal which he will ride into the city. And while in hindsight we know that Christ would be resurrected and that his kingdom would spread throughout the world, the disciples at the time have no guarantee, assuming they even understand what's going on, that when Jesus is killed, of what will even happen to them. This entrance into Jerusalem is like the point of no return. And this last week of Jesus' earthly life is overwhelmingly difficult for his entire following. We'll read the first four verses here. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. where on entering, you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. Now Jesus is absolutely in control, and he arranges this triumphal entry. 
First, he sends his disciples into Bethpage to get the colt, which we learn from the other Gospels is actually a donkey. Now, Bethpage and Bethany were two villages right outside Jerusalem, and they were very close to each other. And Jesus knew them intimately because Bethany was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Not only do we know, and we've seen this as we've gone through Mark, that Jesus spent a lot of time there. He must have known the village well. There was probably no other crowd anywhere in all of Palestine that better understood the power of Jesus. The disciples understood these people in Bethany, but these people in Bethany also had been there and seen the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus, they knew. Lazarus was their friend. And they had come to know Jesus through that. They knew about his glory. They knew about his power. And they had never seen anything like him. When Jesus sends his disciples in to get the donkey, some people have assumed that surely Jesus must have made an arrangement with the owner. People have always debated this over the years. Surely Jesus must have come to some arrangement. He wouldn't just ask the disciples to go and take a donkey, would they? They wouldn't do that, would they? Well, it doesn't say that he made an arrangement. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ very clearly expects them just to walk in into the village and grab the donkey. People are going to say, what's going on? And Jesus says, make sure you let them know that I'm going to be riding it. Now, if you look carefully and see down in verses 32 to 34, we see the disciples did exactly as Jesus instructed them. We'll read those verses. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks over the colt, they set Jesus on it. In the Matthew account, it says, chapter 21, 4 to 5, All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. So Matthew, in his gospel, who's a Jew, takes the Jewish reader back to the Old Testament. Verse 5, it says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly, that is humbly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. That is a thousand-plus-year-old prophecy given whereby Matthew, the gospel writer, is announcing this is one of the reasons why and how you should recognize Jesus. He's going to be riding on a donkey. All through the Old Testament, prophets spoke about the coming Messiah. God had spoke to them, and they prophesied that he would come what he would be sent to do, and what he would be like. In the passage today, we see the city of Jerusalem finally seeing the arrival of the Messiah. We'll see the prophecy being fulfilled, and we'll see the humanity and deity of Jesus in this event. What was said thousands of years ago in the Old Testament just hung there in space, waiting, 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 for the right moment to arrive. And then when that moment arrived, 
the New Testament records show what was promised. Verse 38, 36 and 38 to 38. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down of Mount, the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The crowd spread their cloaks on the road. From other accounts, we know that others cut palm branches and laid them in his path. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed were shouting. And we're told that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, a whole multitude was stirred. This crowd is not from Jerusalem. This crowd was gathered outside of Jerusalem. They went before and after him. And where does the crowd arrive? As soon as the donkey arrives. Why? Because it's from Bethany and Bethpage. Jesus Christ has choreographed this. Jesus Christ has arranged it. In a sense, he arranged for the crowd in the donkey. And he is in total control. He is forcing the issue of who he is. And he's making sure he comes into Jerusalem being declared as loudly as possible, confronting Jerusalem and the leaders of Jerusalem with the claims of his kingship. Another thing to notice is the choice of the donkey. Let's look at this from the vantage of the disciples, from their perspective. Jesus has been a bit mysterious about his kingship. Every time they have suggested, let's go, let's take power, let's take over. You can raise the dead. You can calm the storm. We can easily push these Romans out with all the power that you have. Whenever they challenge him with that, Jesus pushes back. Jesus has always been making statements about his needing to suffer and die, which had to confuse them. But now he's accepting the praises, finally, of the crowd, like someone of royalty. The disciples are finally happy with their master, and he's finally doing something right. But instead of getting on a war horse or inside a chariot, to ride into Jerusalem like royalty, what is he doing? He's getting on a young donkey. But in Matthew's account, he announces that Jesus is doing exactly what was foretold in the Scripture. He quotes the Messianic prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, which Kenneth had read earlier. Matthew 24, or 21, 4 and 5, it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is a different kind of royalty. He's humble. He's the sacrificial lamb. But Jesus is not weak. When you've got all the power in the universe and beyond, the ability to call down a legion of angels, to speak a word and destroy his enemies in an instant. That's the greatest strength I can imagine. 
But he must complete the plan. He's heading to the cross. He's got an appointment with the cross at the end of the week to die for us, exactly as the prophets foretold. And Jesus is riding in the riding of the donkey is fulfilling prophecy. Verse 39 and 40 say, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, the Pharisees, you see, did not acknowledge that Jesus was Messiah. So it enraged them that he was allowing these people to ascribe messianic passages from the Bible to him. These Pharisees didn't like that people were praising Jesus and that he was accepting it. And so they wanted to admonish all the people and to rebuke them for praising him as they were doing. And Jesus, in effect, says to them, no, that can't be done. If I tell them to stop praising me, then the stones will cry out. Why? What he's really saying is that you can't muzzle creation. King David expressed it well in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, where he said, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. The objects that the Lord created display knowledge. The objects he created cry out in the worship of the creator. Jesus, in effect, was saying, if I tell these people to stop, the rest of creation, the stones, the trees, everything else, is going to cry out and worship the creator. Verses 41 and 42 say, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus continues to fulfill his purpose in these two verses, where he weeps as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city. The people were seeking political peace, freedom from the Roman oppression, but there's a greater peace that he desperately wanted them to know because there is a greater oppression than the Roman government or any human government can ever impose on another living being. The greater oppression, the greatest of all oppression, is not what man can do to man, as terrible as that often is. The greatest oppression is sin. It's being separated from God. It's not having peace with God. And what Jesus came to do was to provide us, for us a liberty from sin and death so that we could have peace with God, so that we could be at peace with him. This is what Jesus wanted to usher in. Not a world peace that will come later, but a personal peace so that we could be right with God and have peace with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is that you can live in the freest country on earth 
and be oppressed. And likewise, you can live in the most oppressive country and be free. It all depends on whether or not you know Jesus. And that's why Jesus said in John 8, verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's talking about personal freedom, the liberty of the human soul. And this is what he wanted for them, but they rejected him. And when they rejected him, they rejected the peace that comes with him. And this is why Jesus weeps. It was only recorded twice in the Bible that Jesus wept. No doubt when he wept, no doubt he wept more than that, but twice is all that's specifically recorded. The one time Jesus wept that is most often remembered is when he wept over the tomb of Lazarus. Remember that story? This is the other scene where he weeps over the city of Jerusalem today. And it's interesting that when the Bible describes these two occasions of weeping, it uses two different Greek words. When he wept over the tomb of Lazarus, it was a Greek word that meant the shedding of a tear. Just the shedding of a tear. Just the very quiet shedding of a tear. Because Jesus ultimately knew that Lazarus was going to rise from the dead and that Lazarus would experience eternal life on the other side of that. And so his weeping was not all that emotional, just the shedding of a tear. But in this scene here, where Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem, specifically the people who live in the city of Jerusalem, it is a different Greek word that means wailing and sobbing. I want you to picture our Lord weeping and sobbing over lost people. Now, I don't know if people could even hear him that day when he was wailing and sobbing because they're cheering at the same time. I wonder if some were confused when they were looking at him, all emotional, and they're waving their palm branches and rejoicing. But this is what the Bible says. He wept over Jerusalem because he is cut to the heart. God grieves even today over lost people. Think of our Lord sobbing over lost souls because he realizes that the peace that they had hoped for, that they would never experience without him, and because they had rejected him. They had forfeit the peace that goes with knowing him. And we must know that God is grieving today when he sees the state of our society in 2023. Verses 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you did not know the time is a statement that the people of the day failed to recognize the gravity of. The very promises of God in the Old Testament became the millstone around their feet, assuring their destruction. He is foreseeing the horrific events that were in store for that city. And they will not leave one stone upon another, it says. 
That actually happened in 70 AD. That really took place. Why? We would ask the question, why would such a tremendous devastation happen? Jesus gives the answer here. Here's the reason why, he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not become familiar with what you should have known. People of Sovereign Grace Bible Church, this message is for all of us today. Jesus is saying to them, you had thousands of years to know what I'm holding you accountable for today. To know. Why didn't you know this? It was in his book. It was the book of Daniel. It was in the book of Zechariah. So in the book of Isaiah, all through the Old Testament. And do you think God holds us any less accountable than these Israelites? I'm sure everyone here owns a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just check into a hotel. It's right there in the nightstand. Everybody has access to a Bible. It's even available on your phone. There's no excuse that you don't know the Bible. And Jesus is saying, 21 centuries ago, there is no reason why you Jews here in this city do not know the Scriptures. You're the custodians of the book. You're my chosen people. You should know the book. And he comes to this city, his city. He's coming to Jerusalem, his city. He expected them to know his arrival. He expected them to know the word, to know what he has come for and who he is. And sadly then, Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus prophesied about an event that will be fulfilled 38 years after he says this. The Jewish people will start a revolt against the Roman Empire in 67 AD. And in 70 AD, the Roman Empire has had enough of it. And they will come in and they start slaughtering the Jewish people in Israel and they totally destroy the temple. We know this not from the Bible, as it was written earlier, but we know this from historical records. The Roman soldiers will cut down olive trees from the Mount of Olives, haul it to the Temple Mount, and light it on fire because the oil of the olive trees burns extremely hot. And they will light everything on fire in the Temple Mount. And history says that the gold from the Temple melted from the intensity of that heat and dripped down into the crevices in the stone pavement, and that Roman soldiers were taking knives after it, hardened and picking it out of the gold from the crevices of the pavement, trying to retrieve the gold that had melted from the Temple Mount. Josephus was a first-century historian who was an eyewitness of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. When Titus Vesperian came in with the Roman army and completely destroyed the city, Josephus writes in Antiquities that when that happened, 1.1 million Jews were killed and 97,000 Jews were enslaved, all because they did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. I'm going to share some quick points about this Palm Sunday passage to conclude. Number one, 
God uses people for his kingdom, sometimes to go, sometimes to give, sometimes both. The disciples went. The owners of the donkey gave. Sometimes we do both, but God employs people for his kingdom's work. Number two, Jesus, the Messiah, is always worthy of our worship. Later in the week, when Jesus didn't live up to the crowd's idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be and do, the hero's welcome turned into a mob scene. Jesus may not always deliver according to our expectations, but that only means that he has far better plans for us than we can possibly imagine. So worship him, even when life disappoints, because God always has something better in store for us, and he is worthy of our worship. Number three, there will always be critics, skeptics, and hypocrites in the crowd. Never let that discourage your faith. There are Pharisees in every church, in every town, in every crowd, and in most families. Don't let them define your relationship with Christ or defer you from following him. You are only accountable to God and yourself. God still weeps over lost souls, number four, and so should we. Charles Spurgeon once said, winners of souls must be first weepers of souls. You will not really be able to help God calling his people to Christ if you don't first weep over them in their lost condition. We must develop the same heart that God has for people if we ever expect to be used by God to bring them to the saving knowledge of Christ. As we see in Ezekiel 33, God says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O Hoffs of Israel? And 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. May God give us a heart for the lost in our world. Finally, number five, don't miss the time of God's coming to you. Most of the people of Jesus' day missed him, and he was standing right in front of them. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing when you believe, then you see. Now is the acceptable time. Did you know that the Bible actually tells us that we're going to have a second chance to celebrate Palm Sunday? But this time we're going to get it right. In the book of Revelation, it speaks of a time around the throne of heaven when we're worshiping God and we're worshiping the Lamb, who is Jesus. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. 
and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One day, there's going to be a Palm Sunday celebrated perfectly where everybody's rejoicing. Nobody is rejecting him. Nobody is weeping. We're all celebrating Jesus and worshiping around the Lamb. And I look forward to celebrating that day with you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you desire to save us because of your love for us. And you love us so much that you would give your son, Jesus, to come and die on our behalf. And we think about the people who saw him and rejected him. We pray, Lord, that we would not be numbered among that crowd, that we would miss the time of God's coming. But instead, Lord, with hearts that are receptive, we would open our hearts to you and receive you and believe you and trust you, that we might experience your peace that you have provided for us through your sacrifice on that cross. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to make us mindful of these things this week, especially leading up to the celebration of your resurrection. We love you. We thank you that you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to sing one more time. Before the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, And tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there Who made an end of all my sin Because the sinless Savior died My sinful soul is counted free For God the just is satisfied To look on Him and pardon me To look on Him and pardon me Behold Him there, the risen Lamb 
perfect spotless righteousness the great unchangeable i am the king of glory and of grace one with himself i cannot die my soul is purchased by his blood my life is hid with christ on high with christ my savior and my god with christ my savior and my god one with himself i cannot die my soul is purchased by his blood my life is hid with christ on high with christ my savior and my god with christ my savior and my god Maybe seated. If the ushers will come forward, we'll start our communion remembrance. As we come to the table this morning, we remember what our Father has done for us out of his great love for us. We eat the bread in remembrance of his body that was given for us as a substitute. He shed his blood, he took our punishment endured God's wrath that we deserve so that our sins would be forgiven. So we eat the bread and drink the cup which was given for us. He gave it out of obedience to his Father's will, out of his Father's love for us. Now as we take the elements together when we come to the table, we come to join with him. He did it with his disciples at that last supper as a way of coming to him. Do you know from that night until this morning, all those who are his come to this table? Every time we come, that we take the bread and the cup, we don't just join with each other. We don't just join with each other in Christ, but we join with every disciple, every believer from that day to this day. And we join that those who are to come until the day of his return. It's a communion of saints, a time when we can all join with him. So this morning as we come to the table, we join with gratitude and with great love for him and with a great love for one another. This table is set for those who know him to be true and those who are seeking to draw close to Christ. So if that's not you, let the elements go past. If you feel he's calling you today, this morning as he works in your heart, grab a hold of him. And if you're grabbing a hold of him and believing the truth, then when the plate comes by, join with us, because now is the acceptable time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your table this morning, how thankful we are for your great love for us. We come to the table this morning and we remember the work of your son on a cross. We know that our sins required punishment, 
and that we have no right to stand in your presence. We have no way to eternal life except through you giving up your son, the only sacrifice that would be acceptable. We can stand in your presence because of the life that he led being attributed to us. Change us this morning as we eat this bread. We pray that more of your character would be brought into our own life and that your work in us would be more visible to others and that we would be finding ourselves loving people in ways that we could never imagine before. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.